New sepsis hysteria among providers. The cutest mammal you never heard of is the newest suspect in the coronavirus outbreak. And now there's a new device that gets FDA breakthrough clearance for management of pulmonary hypertension. Hello. Today is February 16th, 2020, and I'm Dr. Michael Zagoda for the Spyro Podcast. Alok Patel, he brings us an interesting discussion related to sepsis based on an article published in The Lancet back in October of 2019. If you haven't checked out The Lancet article about sepsis hysteria, I highly recommend it. It has led to a lot of intellectual debate. You see, when I have a hospitalized patient with an infection, I always think about the possibility of sepsis. It's a healthy paranoia. However, I feel added pressure when asked to maintain a sepsis mortality of, say, less than 17%. And when patients' families tend to bring up statistics that I've read, things like one in three hospitalized patients who die had sepsis, or every sepsis death is a preventable tragedy. I don't know. We know the data are not always generalizable, and that, sadly, not even sepsis death is preventable, even with the best care. This is what the authors of the Lancet article are emphasizing. We want to do right by every patient with sepsis, but the inaccurate portrayal of sepsis epidemiology can raise public alarm and influence how we practice. The authors made several key points about changes in behavior and the overall amount of sepsis cases reported. One main change in behavior is the increase in the amount of antibiotics prescribed. We tend to throw antibiotics around like candy at Christmas. Uh, that's because the guidelines say they need to be started within an hour of uh, initial presentation. The authors take aim at the evidence behind the guideline. There's also reference to a study which shows that approximately 40% of sepsis diagnoses were not actually tied to a confirmed infection. Another study showed that changes in ICD coding actually increased the amount of sepsis diagnosis. So it's not an actual clinical patient issue, instead it's a coding issue. And lastly, the authors of the Lancet article made the point that even with everything done appropriately, many patients with sepsis will inevitably die. This is nothing that a guideline is going to fix. It may be because of underlying chronic illness or even underlying comorbidities. In the end, it's pretty easy to see why there's so much of an emotionally charged debate on social media about all of this. You can check it out by searching hashtag sepsis hysteria. On one hand, you have sepsis advocacy groups uh, who are trying to spread awareness and patients who are outraged that we are even having the discussion. On the other hand, you have scientists and doctors who are trying to separate fact from fiction and get better grasp on sepsis epidemiology out to the masses so we can prevent overtreatment and overdiagnosis. This is the heart of what the authors of the Lancet article are saying. The emotional debate was neatly summarized in a perspective piece for the British Medical Journal. Do you think there's something else we should be doing in how we look at sepsis? Let us know at thespiropodcast.com. The newest suspect in the coronavirus outbreak. Pangolins. Pangolins are the latest suspect in the origin of the novel coronavirus. The New York Times published that in the search for the animal source or sources of the coronavirus uh, that's epidemic in China at this time, uh, the latest candidate is the pangolin, an endangered, scaly, ant-eating mammal that is imported in huge numbers to Chinese markets for food and medicine. Its scales are believed to have a lot of health benefits. The market in pangolins is so large that they are said to be, quote, the most trafficked mammals on the planet, end quote. All four Asian species are critically endangered, and it is far from clear whether being identified as a viral host would be good or bad for these pangolins. It could decrease the trade in the animals, or it could cause a backlash. 
It is also far from clear whether the pangolins and the animal that passed the new virus to humans. Bats are still thought to be the original host of the virus. If pangolins are involved in disease transmission, they would act as an intermediate host. The science so far is suggestive rather than conclusive, and because of the intense interest in the virus, some claims have been made public before the traditional scientific review process. As a result, some researchers who specialize in studying disease that spill over from animals to humans have expressed frustration about conducting discussions about scientific claims without the life breath of science. Publicly available data and accounts of how the research was done that have been vetted by their scientists is rare. While scientists wait for details on genetic studies, there is a gaping hole in the more mundane, so to speak, science that goes around this. But equally important, detective work involved in tracking the path of a disease has become very difficult because of the hysteria. To be certain of what happened with the new virus, researchers need to know exactly which animals were present in the market in Wuhan, which may have been instrumental in the spread of the disease. The virus was found in people associated with the market and in the market environment. It was also found on surfaces, for instance, or even in cages. However, some of the early cases, including what might have been the first reported case, were in people who were not associated with the market. John Epstein, Vice President for Science and Outreach at EcoHealth Alliance in New York, he says that the means the first jump from animals to humans may not have occurred in the marketplace. People may have contracted the disease from animals at another location or even earlier as yet unknown. Unknown cases may have contracted the disease at the market and passed it on to other people. Further complicating matters, animals at the Wuhan market seem to have been quickly disposed of, although reports from China were that uh, samples from those animals tested negative for the virus. So, to date, bats are considered the primary suspect, but the pangolins, or at least the scales from the pangolins that may have been infected by the coronavirus, seem to be the transmission or the fomite through which the transmission has uh, spread so quickly within the market and then has uh, obviously gone uh, global since then. If you or one of your colleagues are taking care of one of the um, novel coronavirus patients, throw us a message here at the SparrowPodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you and see how things are going. Pulmonary hypertension has been a very challenging disease process to take care of my entire career. Fortunately, there is now a new FDA-approved breakthrough device uh, that has been allowed for use in patients. ARIA, A-R-I-A, ARIA, CV Incorporated. Uh, They're a developer of medical devices that treat pulmonary arterial hypertension. They announced that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has granted breakthrough device designation for their new pulmonary hypertension system. Uh, The breakthrough device program is intended to expedite the FDA review and approval of designated devices that may provide more effective treatment of life-threatening or irreversibly debilitating diseases. The breakthrough device program uh, It's intended to help patients gain faster access by expediting designated device development, assessment, and review while preserving the statutory standards for pre-market approval, consistent with the FDA's mission, of course, to protect and promote public health. Despite the availability of multiple drug therapies, pulmonary arterial hypertension remains a disease with large, unmet needs. ARIA's device-based solution has the potential to treat the disease more effectively and with fewer side effects and the breakthrough designation provides the opportunity for earlier access to more patients. As a refresher, pulmonary arterial hypertension is a progressive, highly debilitating disease that may lead to heart failure. The implanted ARIA CVPH system is designed to restore the benefits of a healthy, elastic pulmonary artery, which in turn 
reduces cardiac workload, and enhances blood flow. These benefits have the potential to improve both duration and quality of life. In short, this looks like a pacemaker, but it acts like a balloon pump. So it's a pacemaker-type balloon pump that goes into the pulmonary artery. The FDA's designation of the ARIA-CV pH system as a breakthrough device affords multiple potential benefits to the company, including flexible clinical trial design and facilitated patient access through CMS's revised reimbursement pathway. The CEO says, quote, Our mission is to address the unmet clinical need for this life-threatening disease with an effective treatment options, and this designation brings us one step closer to delivering on this mission, unquote. I've tried to see where this could be available, but I've not been able to see if there are any institutions that are working with this just yet. If your institution is trying this, let us know here at thespiralpodcast.com. We'll get the word out. Look forward to hearing from you. Now it's time of the show where we talk about something I like and something I don't like. I like the book by David Epstein entitled Range, How Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. I once believed the arguments by Malcolm Gladwell in his book about outliers. It championed the idea that outliers are not actually outliers, but instead are people in the right place at the right time that put in at least 10,000 hours to achieve true mastery. Malcolm's arguments and examples were enough to pull my son from all of the other sports he played in and had him focus specifically on one sport so he could put the time in that was necessary to achieve his dream of playing college baseball. He did eventually play college baseball, but in retrospect, a different pathway would have been better. In his book, Range, David Epstein starts off comparing and contrasting two athletes that are arguably the greatest of all time in their respective sports, Tiger Woods and Roger Federer. Tiger Woods followed the outlier model of over 10,000 plus hours specialized in one sport, while Roger Federer was a generalist and didn't specialize until much later in life. Epstein gives a compelling narrative that generalists often find their path late, and they juggle many interests rather than focusing on one. They're also more creative, more agile, and able to make connections their more specialized peers can't even see. It was hyper-specialization that led to the Challenger disaster, keeps doctors from being able to diagnose difficult cases, or come up with new treatment options. Epstein shows us how the generalists have had a more profound impact on society in art, science, medicine, and even law, and has been shown to help solve the most complex problems. How using, for example, a withering technology and lateral thinking can truly change the way things are done and perspectives can be changed. Let me share a personal example. When I was a fellow training in pulmonary medicine, I saw how a balloon was being used to dilate occluded blood vessels and stretch esophageal stenosis. I was learning on how to perform a tracheostomy that used a technique called serial dilation that used increasing sized uh, dilators to create a tracheal stoma for tracheostomy tube placement. This technology evolved into a single dilator technology, but this dilation technique still has some problems. I thought that using a balloon to dilate the stoma would decrease procedure time, minimize tissue trauma, bleeding, and be safer for patients. So I was using a withering technology, the balloon, and lateral thinking to see if that could be used somewhere else. After a period of trial and error, I was able to patent the device and was later purchased by a medical device company and became the standard of care in many hospitals. It was my exposure to other specialties, technologies, and techniques that gave me the idea to use already proven technology in a lateral use. 
The best ideas seem to come from this type of both depth and breadth of life's experiences, so both depth and breadth. And Epstein's book communicates this principle very well. It is provocative, rigorous, and engrossing. Range makes a compelling case for actively cultivating inefficiency while seeking both depth and breadth in experiences and understanding. It's a great book. I highly recommend it. If you don't have a lot of time to read, then at least get it on Audible while you drive. You'll be glad you did. Now, something I don't like. I don't like it when I see managers not own their own responsibilities, but take credit for someone else's ideas or successes. Sadly, this is not an uncommon commentary. Each February, a colleague of mine that is part of another healthcare system has one-on-one -on -one meetings between managers and their direct reports. My colleague was told that his clinic did not meet their annual productivity goals, and as such, they did not get any productivity bonus. Later, he found out that his manager was given a bonus because of how well he led the clinic through a, quote, challenging time. He said, I saw my manager once a quarter. That was it. He asked me how things were going. We had a cordial conversation, and then he was gone. Hadn't seen him since. He said, I, I will admit that I was hurt by his lack of recognition for my team's efforts, he told me. You see, 40 days after their goals were established, one of my friend's partners retired and a second moved out of state due to an illness in the family. This nurse practitioner then went on to bed rest uh, at four months of her pregnancy, leaving him and one other cardiologist to pick up the slack for a total of five providers. Needless to say, he still owned it. With all this adversity, his practice only missed his goals for the year by about a week's worth of patience. Though he came close after he and his partner worked their tails off for the year without any support from management whatsoever, he took all the blame when asked by administration when they did not hit their numbers. His partner shared with me that he told the board that there were other things that could have been done to meet their numbers and that there was no excuse. He knew one partner was going to retire and that his nurse practitioner was pregnant at the time the goals were set. He should have been able to predict the decrease in provider availability to see patients. He could have decreased clinic visit times from 20 to 15 minutes, opening up more slots in clinic to give more access to patients, and he could have even opened up a half-day Saturday clinic. Then, about a week later, he watched his manager get a leadership plaque award and about a $5,000 bonus check for, quote, leading his clinic through an impossible situation. Of note, none of this manager's other practices met their goals, even with a full complement of staff. The next day, he watched that same manager make excuse after excuse in a meeting as to why the other practices did not meet their numbers. He blame-shifted and finger-pointed at everyone else except for himself. You see, there are no bad teams, only bad leaders. When I was in the Marine Corps going through my desert combat training while we were serving in the Persian Gulf War, we would actually have races with other squads. Uh, these races were in full desert gear. The races were to keep us in shape and as a solution to boredom and to build camaraderie. Our company commander called up all the squad leaders and said, Okay, gentlemen, take your teams. You'll cross that berm and go to the destroyed T-55 tank one kilometer north. Pick up a piece of the destroyed tank to prove you were there and then go east for two and a half kilometers to the mess tent. Bring back the hot chow for your squad. If you are not back in 40 minutes, you will not eat hot chow. You will only get MREs. Instead of yelling, ready, set, go, he'd hold up his fist, drop it and shout, get some, and the squads were off. We had to dismount from our Humvee, 
have our full complement of weaponry, including a 50 caliber machine gun, two other machine guns we affectionately called saws, and one shoulder-fired Stinger missile. All of this plus our own gear. We had to basically carry all this for a loaded three-mile run through the Saudi Arabian desert in a town we just recently took called Kafji. The smell of gunpowder and decomposing flesh permeated the air. Each squad had to figure it out. They had to figure it out on their own. How were they going to load the equipment on each other? How would it be distributed? And then work as a team by shifting the lobe throughout the race. This race went on every night for a week. The squads with the leaders that took full ownership of the outcome did the best. The squads that finger-pointed and blamed each other that they weren't carrying their own weight, they ate MREs for the whole week. Then, the next week, we did a similar race at the Kuwaiti airport we had just liberated a day or so prior. This time, the winning squad leaders from a week ago were asked to lead the losing squads. Surprisingly, the squads that were perpetual losers were now in the hunt, and all the squads were able to get a hot meal each night. You see, there are only bad leaders, not bad teams. The best leaders own the outcome. They make no excuses and take all the blame. My friend is now actively looking for a new job. He told me, I love my practice and my patience, but I'm not willing to work for that manager. He said, I'm not quitting my job. I'm leaving my manager. Hmm. That is going to cost his system a lot of money. If you have a similar story, let us know at thespiralpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you. You've been listening to The Spyro Podcast from Mars Hill Media. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked what you heard, it would be great to give us a five-star rating as it helps us to move up the search results. And tell your friends how to subscribe, too. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Zagodin. Today, in the spirit of Valentine's weekend, I'll leave you with a poem, followed by a song entitled, So Full of Love, from my favorite artist, Mason Zagoda. Hope to see you next time. By Dr. Gary Swain. It's based on something he saw while dancing on board a cruise ship. Entitled, Bossa Nova. He gathers her from a metal chair, cradles her cautiously in his arms. They dance. Jobim and Gilberto know nothing of MS, nor tonight does she as, with closed eyes buried deeply in his chest, her mind moves to slow, complicated rhythms of the bossa nova, while limp legs trail marionette-like along the polished floor. This is how I came of age in the city of stars. Wandered through the concrete, the side streets, the Me 